This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. We've got Jeremy Simmons with us, and he's a research fellow at Otago University and Victoria University, and he's studied in the past at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. His research revolves around restorative leadership for transformative justice, particularly in the Asian and Mandanino Filipino Muslim context, and he is a trainer and consultant and research expert in conflict transformation and restorative justice. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Jeremy, could you talk about yourself a bit? You were, how did you come to be born and raised in the Philippines? And you seem to have a strong sense of vocation for peace and justice work. Could you talk about this and how you, your early life influenced your current work? Sure. Thanks, Marvin, and for this opportunity to um, be part of this conversation, this korero. And, yeah, um, it's important to understand a little bit of background. Uh, I was born and raised in the Philippines. My parents were Baptist missionaries for many years, as were my grandparents in the Philippines. So I have quite a strong sort of historic uh, connection to uh, that particular country. Um, After I uh, finished high school and went back to the United States, I uh, worked uh, for some time, got a master's degree in conflict transformation, and then returned to the Philippines uh, some years later and worked there um, in the southern part of the country on the island of Mindanao, doing um, social development work and really working alongside in partnership with indigenous uh, Muslim and uh, Christian Filipinos who were doing various uh, types of work in support of peace building, conflict transformation, um, active nonviolence, human rights advocacy, and related type uh, social development work. So I also did spend about seven years as w- and with my family living in, uh, in Denver, Colorado, in the inner city. And as part of a community, a community development um, uh, organization and uh, intentional community that was looking at uh, racial reconciliation and living out this in an urban context, uh, and and so that was also very important uh, part of my life experience. I th- okay, thank you. 
The uh, Christian religion is observing Lent, which ends with the upcoming celebration of Easter. Is not repentance ultimately about turning around, facing ourselves, and changing? Could you talk about this? And is this a good time for us to thinking about hope overcoming malevolence? We seem to be living through a cast a difficult ear. Where do you find your foundation of hope for your work? Yeah, I think, and I th- it's really important to understand that. I mean, and I think we would all know this that things are not all well in in our world. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of, of of stuff going on that is actually, and in fact, the majority of our lives, uh, for for most people, actually we go about our business, our daily lives, and things are all right. And so it's important to keep sort of a broad perspective, uh, and this whole idea of hope is, I think, is is about recognizing uh, where the where things are going well, where things are working, um, what we have in our life in our each individual person's life, um, sort of what strengths and, and assets do we bring to the table and to the to our surroundings. And I, I think it's it's important um, I mean, for me, you know, I look at sort of my background in having grown up in the Philippines that was uh, uh, sort of a, a country that was in a difficult situation for many years politically and uh, and had suffered and many Filipinos suffered uh, you know through poverty and um, injustice and violence in different ways and so that was very informative for me um, to to sort of get into the kind of work that I've been involved in and um, I think something that gives me hope and you know one of the one of the really sort of um, strong memories I have as uh, as a young person uh, in the Philippines, and I grew up in Manila, in the city of Manila, or just outside the city. And uh, Manila is very modern, um, sort of contemporary, uh, progressive place. And uh, but at the time, um, and in many ways, very westernized. And as a young person, I would go to fast food restaurants. And so one day, I had gone to a I think it was a McDonald's, and I had gotten a hamburger and some French fries, and was had gotten those and take were taking them with me. And as I was walking down the sidewalk in um, in this sort of shopping area in the city, uh, there was a small child that was sitting on the edge of the curb and was begging for food. And I was quite struck by this. I mean, I've seen had seen and have seen a lot of. Uh, poverty, a lot of people in in dire situations, uh, but this child had a sort of distended belly, which was a sign of kwashiorkor or malnutrition, and uh, and so I was really sort of um, struck by this as a young person, and I thought, well, what can I do to help this uh, this child? And so I decided I would give um, my hamburger that I had just bought from McDonald's to this um, young child. And and the child also had some uh, visible signs of perhaps um, emotional or intellectual disabilities. And so um, it was hard to say, sort of, you know, and really ascertain what was going on. But I, I gave this this young person a that my hamburger. And because the child was really not um, sort of fully uh, present, um, uh, to to reality, he just sort of threw the hamburger down onto the ground, 
and there was actually a woman sitting nearby who was in fact this this child's um, I don't know if it was uh, she was his mother, but uh, because there are there's a whole system of uh, begging in in the Philippines um, where where children are actually put out and and you know to um, to get money and then there's a sort of a, uh, a a process whereby that money is then shared and split up. So this woman was sort of monitoring this child, picked up the hamburger that he'd thrown to the side and um, you know sort of like put it back in his hands and, and tried to um, have him eat it. Um, you know it was sort of this very awkward situation uh trying to demonstrate that oh you should be maybe you know you should be thankful for this um bit of food that had been given to you um and so it was and and I then I just sort of I didn't know what to do at this point and I just so I just kept walking um and you know left the situation but it it really uh, so it was something that stayed in my mind and and I and was just you know extremely disturbing that this whole thing had happened and that you know I tried to help out and that that help had not been able to be received and that there was someone else there who was obviously somehow connected but they weren't didn't seem to be doing much either um, and so there's so many levels that you know that could be sort of interpreted and looked at and and over the years um, you know, I've reflected on that. Uh, I mean, the, the fact that, you know, I was giving this child a McDonald's hamburger was, to me is sort of important, you know, is can and raises the question, can we feed the world in, with McDonald's? Will that be the solution to global hunger? Is our current system even fit for purpose in, in addressing things like global hunger? But uh, many years later, when I went back to the Philippines as an adult, and uh, in a different part of the country, I was at a McDonald's again, interestingly enough, and there were several children there who were sort of what we would call street kids. Um, they lived, uh, you know, sort of on the margins of society, and they actually seemed to hang out and sleep in within the um, the steel support structure of a large billboard that was um, right next to the McDonald's. And then they would come down and, and play in the streets or look for money or do little small jobs. But uh, this one day, I happened to see them, and they were actually sitting at one of the tables in the McDonald's that was there. Uh, they had sort of some tables that were outside the restaurant where people could sit and eat. And they were sitting there, and I saw a Filipino, uh, look like a, a Filipino professional um, man come out with some food that he had bought from McDonald's, and he brought it over to the table, and he sat down, and he um, gave this food to these two young boys, and sat down and had a meal with them, and had a conversation with them. And for me, it was quite, I sort of connected these two in my mind. I connected these two um, circumstances and thought, you know, in the face of, you know, really uh, terrible situations of, for, of human suffering and, and difficulty, and, you know, the efforts that we make as people to reach out and to help, and sometimes it's, you know, what we offer is, is just is not fit for purpose or it can't be received for various reasons, and we, you know, we really struggle to sort of understand and deal with these realities. But I was struck that, you know, it was, it was someone who took the time to sit down with these two young boys and, you know, have that conversation and have a meal with them, not just sort of offer charity or hand out, you know, walking by on the street. And someone who was, you know, from their own community, from their own culture, but who was also, you know, economically and socially very different as a, you know, what, uh, as a, as a professional, um, 
Filipino, but that he was in a much better place to offer um, help to these uh, two boys. Now, he didn't, you know, the situation was not solved. You know, the, the, all the, the background and the backstory and the structural issues of, um, you know, that had brought those and allowed those boys to be in that situation were not resolved. But somehow there, there was a step to me, in my mind, there was something there that um, was an indicator of what needs to happen in the world and in the face of, you know, great violence and suffering that we see around us is that there are ways to reach out. There are ways to help. Um, we may not be able to change it all, but we can at least be um, change, you know, be the change and be there for people who need uh, something at a particular moment in time. It doesn't mean we lose sight of these other things, but to me, that is um, a really important thing, and that does give me hope, is that people are out there doing these things um, and helping out and, and making a difference in small ways. And at the same time, um, others, while others are work looking and working at the sort of uh, the structural or the systemic levels to try to bring about a more just and, and fair society. So I think those those are some of the things that um, sort of give me hope. And as a person of faith, uh, that's also, um, you know, as Marvin, you were saying, it's Lent. It's a time of reflection in the Christian uh, religion or in the Christian tradition where we consider uh, our own sort of um, uh, our own contribution to the ills around us, to what isn't, to the suffering in the world, our own potential for violence, our own, um, you know, indifference to the the suffering that is around us. And so, Lent is a time when we reflect on that, and uh, and and in our faith tradition, we sort of carve out a, a period of time to do that in a systematic way. Um, and so that's really important uh, because at Lent then ends with uh, the celebration uh, of what is Easter, uh, which is a death and a resurrection, um, a cruel, you know, suffering and, and execution that uh, Christians believe um, uh, that Jesus experienced. And then um, a few days later was miraculously uh, raised to life. And so that for me as a person is also something of, of great hope because death is not the final um, answer is not the last does not have the last word and for people of faith who have a sort of a transcendent perspective on the world um, this this story this um, experience this thing that we believe is uh, provides a powerful sort of um, source of hope and and faith and um, belief that there is that that um, ultimately good will overcome and as Martin Luther King said the you know the arc of um, what is it? The arc of the world bends towards justice, and so, and so I think there's a deep sort of spiritual and philosophical um, hopefulness for people who are are willing to look and to see and to and to perceive those things, and and I think that's a big part of our, um, you know, our struggle and is to. Uh, have our eyes open and to have that ability to see and to discover and explore where we can s continue to support hopefulness, support what is good and what is right and what is just in the world. This ex extends itself beyond Christianity, isn't this hope mm. in a way? I mean, like, well, we can talk about Buddhists and Buddhism, but you can also talk, I've read a book recently, by, well, not that recently, but a while back by a physicist called The Beautiful Question. And it's about 
It was about science and physics and the universe and how much beauty there mm. is in the universe and how much beauty there is in seeking and asking the questions. Mm. And the questions themselves can be beautiful. That So there is a place to to seek hope even if if you're not if, even if you don't consider yourself religious mm. that maybe there's a place in the universe and a place in your heart for seeking hope and where you go from there is a, another question mm. but yeah and I think I, I share that because as a person of faith um, it's really important I mean I'm I'm my, you know, the most dangerous person in the world is not Vladimir Putin, and it's it's not uh, the, you know, it's not the military junta in Myanmar, it's not um, Joe Biden, uh, it's not Donald Trump. I'm the most dangerous person in the world. Um, you know, we have to. I think I guess it's just important to start and take, you know, to to look at that that mirror and that image in the mirror which is of yourself and to say look I need to address my own things but I also need to find the resources to overcome those um, you know those dangers and those uh, those really um, um, terrible you know potentials that individuals and that humans have within myself and uh, look for the sources or the antidotes and the solutions to that from uh, my own tradition and so that's why I emphasize and, and I talk about that because this is a way of finding the good because there's plenty to criticize about Christianity there's plenty to there's you know horrible things have been done in the name of of religion generally and in the name of um, you know in the name of Jesus I quite ironically uh, who is uh, you know who is always promoting and 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 committed to to nonviolence to um, to turning in the other cheek and so it's important for me to find those resources within my own tradition because uh, there's a danger in co-opting others or in um, appropriating other religions and traditions and cultural practices. And um, so it's it's the same thing that we would then, um, in our conversation and our work for peace and justice, we ask people then to look at their own tradition, their own sort of histories. Where do they find those sources and resources of peace and justice? Um, you know, in, in Russian culture, you know, some of the greatest writers of our time, Dostoevsky, um, you know, War and Peace, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, great uh, Russian dissident, uh, you know, these are, those are the sources that Russians, Russians will have to access to, to bring about and to transform their own approach and engagement and their own political culture. Um, and so we, we all, you know, we, we're all victims of the potential for violence and, and injustice. And so we all are sort of, it's incumbent upon all of us to, uh, you know, find common cause with people across uh, various political divides, across various cultural divides and culture wars, and say, look, we, we all have to do that hard internal work ahead of time and have the humility to, to come to the table with the uh, knowledge that we don't have all the answers, you know, but that by working together we can find um, and construct and build, you know, uh, a better world together and find some of those those solutions that are that are out there. I guess I think it's imp isn't it important that we the world has become partly through a certain approach to science. I wouldn't say it's science, but the idea that you can really only know in. Uh, 
understand what you can measure or what you can test materially. But we've become, in many ways, a very secular society. And I guess I think that we all need to question that there's more to life than what we can measure. Mm. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't matter where we come from. That's mm. a possibility. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I think we've sort of, there's been a shift even from the secular, um, kind of the secular age to the post-secular. I think we're actually living in an age where where there's a lot more openness to spirituality, to transcendence, to um, finding uh, sort of uh, meaning and purpose in things that aren't always mm-hmm. um, clearly um, sort of measurable, at least in material ways. And so, uh, but I mean, we do live in a universe and in a world that is... Um, uh, is ordered. It makes sense. It can be that we can investigate, we can inquire for our material and our social realities, and so that tells us something about, I believe, about you know, sort of the larger picture that we're that we're part of, and uh, so so that opens up a lot of potential and possibilities. Um, I think as we as we look at the world around us and the social realities around us, and I think that's part of the reason we have a lot of the um, sort of conflicts and um, you know culture wars erupting now as we do is I think we are in a bit of a period of a shift from a, you know a more rational, a more um, sort of Western um, sort of framed worldview to or way of being in the world to uh, being open to other ways of knowing and other ways of being that are um, indigenous that have that are coming from what you know some call subaltern or for colonized communities and and um, places uh, who you know who have very different um, understandings of the world and so I think that's that's a lot of potential but um, for us but that also means that some of those um, subconscious um, like I said worldviews ways of understanding and looking at the world are going to be challenged and people are feeling that threat um, or that sh- that shift and uh, it's it's not always easy for people to a uh, change is difficult um, but for people to uh, suddenly be um, faced with uh, sort of changes in sort of fundamental ways of looking at the world. Um, and they may, you know, people who haven't necessarily asked for that change. Uh, it's important change. Uh, it needs to happen. But um, it means uh, it's how we make sense of the world, our our, our culture and our um, social realities. And so we shouldn't be surprised and we should perhaps have a little grace with people when there's uh, resistance, when there's pushback, and when some people take advantage of that to advance, you know, uh, their own political interests or, or certain um, cultural perspectives that uh, we would find really problematic. So it's, I think we, it's, it's in the process, though, of moving down from 
polarized and you know uh, very aggressive um, discourses to more personal interactions and connections that I think we can sort of move past that and help people understand that you know in a sense there's a bit of a worldview conflict or worldview conflicts but the the good news is we can change our worldviews you know we can actually adjust that but it takes perhaps a bit more conscious effort a bit more willingness to be open to other perspectives and ways of being and ways of knowing and um I think that's a, another sort of source of hope for me is just the fact that um, we can change, we can shift the way we look at things um, if we have un, uh, sort of the right people around us and the right circumstances and the safe spaces to reconsider some of our, you know, long-held assumptions. Don't we also, which ever, however we sit with changing, have to be aware that we could be wrong Mm. All of us, any of us, I can be. I know I've been wrong in the past mm. about certain things, and I probably will be in the future. Do we have to actually consider that and that the cutting off the what you consider the wrong answer, mm. shutting it down isn't really the answer, isn't the way to go? Mm. Yeah, I think it's it takes a f sort of a fundamental bit of humility on our part to, you know, to be willing to say, look, we're walking through, you know, our our daily lives and some mm. really difficult conversations and um, sort of cultural movements around the world. But that, yeah, we might be wrong. And what we're proposing and suggesting and asserting right now, we may we may look back, uh, you know, in 50 years, and, and people would say, well, how could, you know, mm. you really miss the boat on that. So, you know, every sort of movement has has within it its own potential for further growth and development and, um, you know, being challenged in and of itself. So I think that's I think that humility is is really valuable and really important, but it's hard to do. It's 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 not always easy. That's been one of my disappointments, I think, within myself, but also within when I think about both Buddhism and Christianity. Basic to both of them in different ways is a deep humility, mm. a deep sense of, of, in the case of Christianity, service to others, mm. and um, things that you have to listen to, even though you might not understand them. Mm. And I think in Buddhism there's a similar humility mm. in the basis of both of those. Mm. Yet, in both cases you have oftentimes uh, an unwillingness to listen, an unwillingness to mm. see the other. Mm. I think, it, yeah, and any religious tradition can be used for good or for evil. I mean, those, uh, again, the sort of the, the meaning that hap that people get from their, their, their faith tradition, which is part of the, the you know, their larger cultural um, identity is, uh, is absolutely, um, you know, is a absolutely fundamental to a person uh, and to their mm -hmm. sense of who they are. But that can be, um, you know, when you know when you feel that your sense of identity, your sense of social 
um, belongingness and place is being threatened, it's much easier to push back um, and to and to um, sort of identify the the problem with with the other, with the the ones on the outside who may be you know put, causing some of those um, mm. some of those challenges, some of those discomforts, rather than taking um, a, m- a minute to step back and say, well, maybe there's a maybe there's some truth there. Maybe I need to. You know, take that uh, long look on uh, inside and, and see if there isn't something that we need to, to think about. But that's that's really hard when that that is all tied up in your sense of identity and your sense of you know fundamental beliefs about how the how the world works. In both uh, faith, in in many faith traditions, I can only talk about two of them because I haven't really studied Hinduism at all. Mm. There are spokespeople who show that humility. Uh, one mm. of the things I like about Pope Francis is his willingness to say, I was terribly wrong when mm. I was young. I did wrong things. And I, and I believe in mercy because I needed mercy. I needed forgiveness. Mm. Um, and I think there are people in Buddhism who would say similar things in different ways. So there are resources, aren't there? Mm. And in, is, in Islam, there is a, a, a very strong tradition of forgiveness in, in Islam, in judicial precedent. Um, so the, you know, so those things are there. Uh, you, you know, the, it's it, again, it's not for me to speak as an expert around that, but just to note that within each tradition, you can find those those things. I might have a, a song now.
again Yeah, we're dancing in the love light Birds sing that sweet refrain When we're dancing in the love light And I drink it up and start Dancing in the love light Dancing in the love light Dancing in the love light Oh, man I love it when I see a little light shot You send a quiver all the way down my spine Yeah, I love it when I see you Standing in the love light You still know the world again When you're standing in the love light And the more it reflects The warmer it gets When you're standing in the love light Dancing in the love light Moving in the love light Yeah, I love it when I see all that light shining More and reflects Whoa, whoa, We're talking with Jeremy Simons, a research uh, fellowship in uh, uh, research for peace and conflict resolution. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to community or chaos. I might ask a further question about tolerance. I was um, it shows my bias, but I wasn't. I haven't been too surprised that a certain amount of censorship yeah, on the main, uh, on the right, not just among extreme right either. Because uh, I grew up around a certain amount of things you couldn't talk about. You could never talk about, for instance. Capitalism in a, in a thorough way when I was young in America, or communism, Marxism. But you also get censorship and intolerance on the left, especially when it comes to identity politics. And mm. that bothers me a bit. Well, it bothers me more than a bit, I suppose. Mm. 
Yeah, I think there's a, there's a tendency when we when we feel that our not just our individual identity, but our collective identity is under threat. That what is threatening to that um, and this, whatever messages those are need to be um, eliminated, and that's you know that's can kind of leads to a form of intolerance. Um, and there's a sort of a, there's a social process that goes along with that of of of, of greater and greater sort of um, isolation of different social groups. So that instead of talking across boundaries or across lines, we only talk to the the people that that who sort of hold the same ideas that we do. And so and, and what that tends to do is that tends to then um, make it much easier to stereotype the other. Um, the other group and the individuals in that other group as being a certain way, and and through those stereotypes, um, sort of leads to a form of dehumanization because we no longer see them as as individuals as people, but as simply as a social sort of as a con- a, a, a stereotyped uh, construct in our own um, of our own making, and 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 so that becomes a form of violence, and and that then sort of ricochets back and forth um those uh, the throwing of uh, of of threats and of um of sort of accusations as those social divisions increase and so it takes um it takes people being willing to step across those boundaries actually takes people being willing to step across the internal boundaries because part of the sort of the misinformation about that about the other and about ourselves is that we all believe and think the same thing but actually you'll find that even within groups there's a uh, great diversity and, and people are um, there's also internal um conflicts that haven't been dealt with that haven't been resolved and oftentimes those are stemming from traumas that people have experienced or have perceived or have felt that they've experienced and so there's there's been no sort of productive way of processing and dealing with those traumas and it's much easier to externalize those or to project them onto the other than to actually address those um, ourselves and particularly with people that are closest to us but who we don't necessarily always get along with easy uh, at, or as well so um, it takes you know it takes sort of a, a unique set of or group of people who are willing to to explore some of those things both within our own communities within the peoples that we affiliate and have affinity with and then to ha- start bridging across uh, to other groups that have um, we might see as the problem or as the um, the enemy, and and that's what the, that's what a peace building process is about. And for myself, as a, a person who's been involved in restorative justice, you know, as you're going through that process, then the question comes up: Well, what do we do about the harms that have been caused, um, the damage that's been done by this conflict, by this? Um, uh, war, whether it's a, a literal war or whether it's a culture war or it's whether it's any other sort of family feud, um, you know, how do we deal with those um, harms in a way that doesn't cause further harm and damage in the process? Um, so uh, that's where this this idea of restorative justice can be quite helpful because it really simply asks us to to consider the possibility that we can do justice without doing further violence and that there's there are ways to um, bring about justice and accountability 
uh, without necessarily inflicting further harm and further violence. And it's a natural response when, when you've been hurt, when a person has been harmed um, by some form of violence, whether it's a small thing or, or, or a big thing, um, to want to it's a natural fight or flight response to protect yourself and to um, perhaps lash out to stop that or to simply try to, um, uh, you know, respond and cause and inflict um, some sort of pain um, that you've uh, uh, the, in a similar way to the pain that you've felt yourself. And so that um, it, taking having processes where those natural um, sort of especially initial responses can be sort of channeled into more constructive um, accountability um, conversations is what restorative justice is about. And that can happen at, at sort of an interpersonal level, it, and it can also happen at a social level, and there's different things that need to happen at, in those different contexts. But it's the overall idea that we can somehow work towards a form of justice that um, really brings about accountability and the restoration and repair of harm by everyone involved um, in a situation and that it can be made right and that people can, in some cases, restore and repair relationships and even if uh, maybe not uh, bring about a reconciliation or a friendship, but at least there can be, again, this coming back to this idea of tolerance, that we're willing to mm -hmm. live with each other, with those whom we don't agree with, with those who might have hurt us at some point, but we've been able to at least um, repair some of that damage in a way that allows us to live together without um, further um, uh, need for vengeance or for retribution um, or for um, polarization and, and you know um, calling out the other for the things that actually are our own issues that need to be dealt with. So, so that's so that's I think a. a hopefully a, a helpful um, starting point in our culture wars that we see happening around us um, to think about how can we sort of do the internal work both as individuals but within our own groups what is the kind of stuff that we need to do before we start projecting our issues on on other people I notice even within communities we can think we all agree we can actually think we have a consensus and maybe we don't mm. and if we think we do and we don't, it can be very, I think, difficult. Mm. Maybe that's, uh, we might go back to international issues again. Mm. Uh, the International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Putin on the grounds he's a war criminal and a kidnapper. Is this not a double standard when 20 years after the invasion of Iraq, there were no arrest warrants for George W. Bush or Tony Blair. What do you think about this? Uh, I mean, in a sense, yeah, there is a double standard, although I think the context is different. Um, this, the realities are different, but certainly there is a, at least the appearance of a double standard. And, and for many people who uh, outside the West, they would feel like, yeah, it's 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 that's quite rich to be suggesting that um, Putin, you know, and Russia were are at fault when um, the U.S., you know, without uh, provocation, without really any um, uh, justification, invaded Iraq. 
and um, you know to topple uh, Saddam Hussein, but ostensibly to um, you know to uh, address a concern around weapons of mass destruction, which it turned out was uh, which is was totally um, there. There were no weapons of mass destruction, and so you know it, it raises the question of you know misinformation and, and and disinformation even before the age of the internet in the you know the 1990s when this was happening and how you know the U.S. public came to believe that uh, this was you know what had happened in Iraq and when in fact that was not the case and so you know the US is and that that again coming back to that th need for humility the the pride of thinking that the US could go into a country um, and you know get rid of the leader and have absolutely no plan for what to do afterwards um, for how to support uh, people because many Iraqis of course did not like Saddam Hussein but um, you know what happened afterwards was its own um, you know, catastrophic failure of governance and was its own form of injustice. And so there is certainly a need to um, consider that. Um, but, but, to, but to then suggest that that means there shouldn't be any sort of um, responsibility for what has happened um, between Russia and Ukraine, and certainly on with Russia's unprovoked attack uh, on Ukraine, that is um, that that would be the wrong lesson to take from that uh, experience, the prior experience of the U.S. Uh, we can we can call for justice. We can work for justice in both cases and say that yes, there does need to be accountability, uh, but it's going to look different in, in each one of those scenarios. And as ultimately, it's it's the probably the most the key. Um, constituency or set of stakeholders in bringing about that accountability for um, the United States actions in Iraq is the people of the United States and the key constituency and stakeholders for ensuring accountability for Russia's action in Ukraine is the people of Russia and so you know I, I think you know again expanding our sense of our idea of justice of accountability beyond simply a legal um, sort of approach, which is what you know, and it's a, the legal approach is important. The the the, um, the International Criminal Court, what they do is is valuable, is extremely uh, represents a kind of a consensus among peoples and amongst um, nations, uh, but without that, in a space where there is no sort of uh, overarching world um, legal body or you know supreme court for the for the for the earth for all the countries of the world uh, so the international criminal court is a place where that at least symbolically um, that can be uh, demonstrated a a sort of um, desire and a a, uh, a decision around who uh, around people who should be held accountable so um, I, I think so I think that whole um, that whole process of accountability, of seeking um, peace, seeking uh, justice for Ukraine, for the people of Ukraine, is something that needs to, at least in our minds, include the, the, the voices and the work of the Russian people themselves. And the, um, I mean, the fact that, and I think that th this, again, trying to um, move beyond this idea of, of its, uh, the West against Russia, or it's um, uh, you know the U.S. against uh, or Biden against Putin, uh, but to to suggest that rather that um, there's has been great um, discontent within Russia around what has happened. I mean, when 
when when Putin had his partial mobilization, hundreds of thousands of men actually, I mean, and this is really, and we don't necessarily see it this way, but it was a form of active nonviolence. They simply refused to show up. They fled the country um, f- uh, in response to this this war draft. And so we need to see we we need to keep our eyes and our imaginations open to understand that many of these struggles were actually shared struggles, and that these struggles started before um, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. There's been democracy movements, there's been um, media, uh, human rights movements, there's been transparency movements, um, you know, happening within Russia and, and within the United States. And again, we need to look at our own selves critically about, you know, what, to, to what extent and to what ways are we resourcing and perpetuating conflict and violence through our own, you know, hugely, um, in, for Americans and for myself as uh, someone with American citizenship, our huge defense industry that is far greater than, than you know, the, the military spending of, of any, uh, any other country. And so, you know, those, those questions, those efforts, you know, I, to me work um, across national and political boundaries and identities, and I think open up a lot of potential and a lot of uh, cre- creativity that can be found when we start to sort of think differently about what justice looks like, what democracy movements look like, um, what peace building looks like. And so, um, yeah, that's my starting point, I guess. Okay, it's, to me, it's difficult when the conflict is still going on, and, mm. and it could go on, if things, if there isn't negotiation, it could go on for a generation or more. Mm. Um, it's obvious that Putin has committed major war crimes, but is it wise to condemn him as a war criminal if we want to negotiate with him to end the war in the Ukraine? And is it also the case that the United States has at times talked as if they wanted to humiliate and defeat Russia? Uh, Do we need to find alternative solutions to this conflict, and how do we get there? How do we we speak to people who have committed criminal action and are still in power, Mm. probably securely in power for a while? Yeah, and this is, uh, I mean, th- there's, there, this is, it's not to suggest that there's an easy answer or an easy solution. Um, these are extremely difficult things. I mean, in the process of the, the invasion of Ukraine, I mean, th- one of the effects of that is that the R- Russian civil society, um, the Russian, you know, uh, space for, for free speech, for political dissent, has really con- constricted and contracted uh, many of those people. Um, I mean, you know, the 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 the, mo- the efforts by media personalities within the state media within Russia to uh, for some of those people to speak out, uh, you know, and, and then having had to flee the country, you know, that has left um, sort of the the political space within Russia uh, with a lot less um, uh, potential uh, actors and and people who can continue to work from the inside. So there has to be, you know, both an inside and an outside, uh, multiple inside and outside movements. Um, You know, do we need to humiliate, uh, you know, are are we out to humiliate 
Putin? Are we out to humiliate Russia? I, I think it's just, it's it, it it's it, maybe it's the wrong question. I mean, to be asking how to me, it's more about how do we negotiate these um, these realities as peoples? How do we negotiate with the Russian people? It's not just about Putin. Um, he certainly is a powerful person, but there are others in his orbit. There are other um, power players, and this is where that. You know that critical, active, nonviolent approach takes a, a hard-headed and real-world look at you know how is a, a particular regime, how is a particular authority structure actually resourced, how is it actually supported through the you know through the willingness, the conscious um, decisions by people within that system, that social political system, that economic system, to continue to um, lend their social license, their support, their political um, support uh, for that particular person or for that particular regime. So again, this is it's as much about um, looking within ourselves and within and across those those dividing lines to see where are the potential leverage points, where are the potential relationships, and some of those connections may be with folks um, across you know you know in in other groups or communities that um, you may also it's not like you're choosing um, you know an angel or the devil on the other side you may have a couple you know um, devils to to have to figure you know figure out and how and how you're going to engage or possibly work with but the question is can we reduce the the suffering in the like you were saying in the midst of a conflict of a war how can we reduce the suffering how can we reduce the violence and that's where the again active nonviolent approaches are not just about protests but they're also about slowing down um, violent actions military actions they're also about providing space for humanitarian aid and intervention for refugees and displaced people to escape so there's a whole um sort of constellation of efforts and um potential activities that can be done that again active nonviolent and civil dis disobedience um, movements can be uh, quite useful and productive and meaningful even within uh, spaces of armed conflict and violence. And there's, there's a, a, an extensive history of this, uh, documented um, accounts of this during World War II. Um, across various um, world, you know, international and intranational or civil um, war situations, where people have set up and worked towards zones of peace or times of, um, you know, stand downs and ceasefires, and that those um, seeking those spaces and working to develop those spaces can then pave the way for larger um, or for more extensive um, places where where conflict ceases or where the armed or violent conflict ceases. And so it's really about finding ways to, um, you know, uh, to wage conflict nonviolently, to find ways to disagree without, um, you know, hurting, attacking, and killing each other, and to, uh, you know, and, and that, that understanding that those are not um, simple processes or, um, you know, simple things that are done at a particular point in time. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for your very helpful comments and hopeful comments. We appreciate that very much. Yeah, no worries, and it's been really great, and thanks for, for the invitation and for the chance to have this conversation.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.